wall. Just that one word, wall. It's September 2016, and all you have to do is say that word, and people know what you're talking about. The wall Donald Trump wants to build along the border with Mexico and have Mexico pay for. He also wants to keep out Muslim immigrants, deport undocumented immigrants, and end birthright citizenship. This week, though, Trump acknowledged that immigrants do enrich the country. We've admitted 59 million immigrants to the United States between 1965 and 2015. Many of these arrivals have greatly enriched our country. So true. But we now have an obligation to them and to their children to control future immigration. That was half a sentence in an hour-long speech. So I wanted to spend a bit more time on the extent to which immigrants and kids of immigrants give back, because it can be a really big deal for them. Giving back might sound corny, though. It is kind of general and tough to wrap your head around. So in this episode, I offer you the specific legacy of one immigrant, Paul Soros. The New York Times called him the Invisible Soros because most people are familiar with his little brother, George, the billionaire philanthropist. George took on many high-profile causes, but Paul and his wife Daisy focused mainly on just one, first-generation Americans, including those who didn't come to this country legally. They created the Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowships for New Americans, which have paid for the graduate educations of more than 550 immigrants and kids of immigrants, including Andre Cherney. What we see today is such a strong tide of anti-immigrant sentiment and it's always struck me that the Soros Fellowship is in many ways the perfect response to that. Andre is the son of Czech parents who came to America as political refugees. He went on to become the presidential speechwriter for Bill Clinton, the youngest person ever to hold that position. So often we hear the idea that today's immigrants are different than the ones who perhaps showed up on Ellis Island ready to work, ready to strive, so often we hear this idea that immigrants are coming here to take advantage of the system. And I think we need to be reminded that there is a powerful through line with the people showing up today at LAX. The idea of giving back is something that you hear from immigrants in every conversation. That story needs to be told and retold and retold again. Today, Andre and other Soros fellows are like a secret club of some of the most successful business leaders, architects, artists, professors, scientists, and doctors in America. And they consistently give back, as corny as it sounds. I think that is something that unites the immigrant experience. The idea that we are so blessed to become part of the United States and with that opportunity comes a set of responsibilities. The sense of responsibility drives these kids of immigrants ruthlessly, even while they struggle to balance two cultures and handle normal life tragedies like accidents, illness, and death. We'll talk to a few Soros fellows about that and spend time with one in particular, Pardis Sebedi, one of the world's leading geneticists who helped stop the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. She's also a rock star, literally. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this is Otherhood. America loves to call itself the land of immigrants. 
Bachar the Jambalapathy didn't feel welcome when her Indian parents settled on a farm in rural Georgia. The experience drove her to civil rights work at the Southern Poverty Law Center and then to pursue a law degree at UC Berkeley, which is where she was in May when she got this call. Hello. Yeah. Hi, this is Juliana Nika from the Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowship for the Americans. Hey, how are you guys? Oh, we're fine. So it's with great delight that I am calling to invite you to become a 2016 Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow. Oh my God. I like, wow. I'm like, okay, right now I'm like standing outside the law school in the rain because I have my sunglasses on because I just had an eye appointment. It's I probably look stupid, but oh my god, I can't believe like that. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh my god. I can't even believe you're calling me. Like I just like, wait, are you sure you have the right number? <laughs> As a twenty sixteen Paul and Daisy Soros fellow, Sharda won't have to worry about paying for graduate school the way Paul Soros did. Paul's wife Daisy says he always regretted being limited by money. He always told me if somebody just would have kind of given him $10,000 at that time, his whole life would have been totally different. When you consider everything that Paul had been through up to that point, money does seem like an absurd obstacle. Paul and George Soros were born in Hungary to Jewish parents. They came of age during World War II. The family used a false identity to survive. After the war, George went to England, but Paul wasn't as lucky. The Russians occupying Hungary captured him twice, the first time mistaking him for an SS officer. The second time, he was taken as a prisoner of war. He escaped while they were marching to a camp. A few years later, Paul finally got a chance to leave communist Hungary. The country's Olympic ski team was going to the 1948 Winter Games in Switzerland. Paul got on the team, but he injured his ankle before they left. Somehow he still managed to use the passport to travel to Austria. He was in that country less than a year, but in that time, he managed to become its second highest ranked tennis player. Then, finally, Paul's visa to America came through. So he got here and arrived with about, I don't know, $18 and a Leica camera on his shoulder. Paul was accepted at MIT and Stanford, but he went to a college in Brooklyn because that was all he could afford. He lived on $8 a week, which means for lunch you had an apple. It was just a very hand-to-mouth existence, which he wasn't necessarily used to. And he lived in Brooklyn in a rented room, which he decided must have been a bordello actually at one time because it had red velvet on the walls and mirrors on the ceiling, but <laughs> nevertheless. In 1950, Paul moved into international student housing, and that's where he met Daisy, a fellow Hungarian. She was living there while she studied at Columbia University. They dated, married, had sons, and all in all, lived happily ever after. Over the next several decades, Paul made a fortune building industrial ports around the world. It was the classic immigrant story, coming to America, enduring hardship, working really hard, and achieving success. But Paul wasn't sentimental about living through hardship. He wanted to spare others the experience. We were having breakfast one morning, and I think it was in 1997. And it was a time when we were doing pretty well financially. And I said to my husband, I think we should do something with our money. 
And at that time, a lot of our friends put their names on buildings, and my husband didn't believe in bricks and mortars, really. And he said, well, let me think about it. And I would say a couple of days later, he came back with this idea of let's do something for immigrants who come and want to study. Paul and Daisy created their Fellowship for New Americans, endowed it with $75 million, and carefully crafted guidelines for choosing fellows. Surprisingly, they didn't want applicants to have to show financial need in order to win a fellowship. It was, I think, more a philosophy than anything else, because if it's based on need, it's a sob story. So that was number one criteria. Number two criteria was not to really have a quota system. In other words, we didn't want to have 14 Asians and 10 uh, Europeans and six, uh, whatever. Anybody, the best, we wanted to get the best. And the disappointment rate is practically non-existent. I mean, we were very, very lucky. The Soros Fellows have grown into a close-knit group. They get together every year for retreats. Daisy hosts them at her house in New York and takes them to plays and operas. I try to go to concerts when they are at Carnegie Hall. I try to send wedding presents if they get married or baby presents when they have a baby. And there are a number of them who got married to each other. So it's a whole little community. That community can be an important source of support as Soros Fellows navigate life. They have basic things in common. In the back of their minds, like many kids of immigrants, they're always wondering what would have happened to them if their parents hadn't come to this country or if this country hadn't let them in. I think there's a universality to the experience that we share, which is why across the different ethnic backgrounds and different religions and different races and different academic fields and professional fields, there is that commonality. 2001 fellow Jeannie Sook's parents found refuge in America after originally fleeing North Korea. Jeannie became the first Asian American woman tenured at Harvard University, but she's still haunted by gratitude. I think very frequently about what my life would be if my parents had not been able to flee. Now, of course, maybe I wouldn't have been born because they wouldn't have met and created me, but if I had been born at exactly the same time in 1973, just across the border in North Korea, I would still, you know, I would be 43 years old and I would not be here, of course. I would just have a completely, utterly different existence and I would be a different person, really. I think about that so much. It's very difficult for me not to fixate sometimes on the contingency of life, even as I'm putting all my effort into making the most out of the things that I have. There's also the lifelong process of acclimating to America and, to a certain extent, pushing back against your parents' culture. Jeannie's family didn't encourage her to speak when she was a kid, but she grew into an outspoken law professor. Sometimes it can be devastatingly hard to be growing up in a, an immigrant family that holds certain truths as really crucial and unquestionable, and then those conflict with the things that the immigrant child feels are important. It's just such a basic conflict, and it happens so often, and it certainly happened with me. Even after you leave your parents' house, there will be expectations placed on you by many people, and you have to 
figure out how you're going to deal with them. You know, to what extent you're going to meet them, to what extent you're going to flout them, to what extent you're going to work with them. It's, it's just inescapable that, that you have that constant process in your mind. And everyone makes their own choices about that. You take from here, you take from there, and then you cobble together a self, which is very complicated. Jeannie's unique way of giving back to America is by challenging it to consider its most controversial issues. She writes articles that appear in places like The New Yorker about some of the toughest legal issues, like transgender bathrooms and sexual assault on campus. Those articles make her a lightning rod. People write horrible things about her on the Internet, but she keeps doing it. Sometimes things should be said that maybe other people aren't willing to come out and say, I mean, they should be said in a reasonable manner that is supported by logic and evidence. That is my aim, to take on really difficult issues, to have the most difficult conversations. And maybe this is a a hopeless task, but I still have hope in reason. Jeannie's close friends with another Soros fellow across the Harvard campus, Pardis Sabeti, and we're going to spend the rest of the episode with her. Pardis was in Harvard Medical School in 2001 when she got the Soros Fellowship. I actually remember the day I got the phone call that I got the Soros. She remembers being blown away by all the opportunities that were suddenly open to her. Often when you have that kind of financial support, you don't feel stressed and you feel empowered to try things out. And so it ended up being incredibly valuable for me. Alongside her academics, the Soros Fellowship helped her pursue another passion, to be lead singer for a band called Thousand Days. It was one of these things where every time I was like having trouble, like something was going wrong or I wasn't doing well in performing my class, it would be like, she's also in a band. Like, it was a bad thing. It was sort of a, she's distracted, she's in a band. But then when I started, when my research started going really, really well and it was very successful and I was getting recognition for it, they're like, and she's in a band. In 2002, Pardis made a breakthrough in her research. She discovered a radically different way of charting development in genes, basically through an algorithm. Overnight, Pardis was famous. Harvard gave her her own lab and her own team of researchers. Her discovery led her to more breakthroughs about how pathogens evade destruction by the human immune system. In 2012, the Smithsonian Magazine called Pardis the rollerblading rock star scientist of Harvard. The story had one picture of her in a white lab coat with her wavy brown hair pulled back. Another photo showed her behind a microphone in a black tank top playing a guitar. It was a long way to come for a strange little kid who other kids made fun of in school. I think I was the classic strange kid in your high school. Those things that make you a weirdo when you're younger is what defines you as you're older and often in a good way. And Pardis has always had a big heart. 
my first and one of my only few diary entries, I was not a very good like diary person, but uh, it's, it's a pretty ridiculous one. It's basically some of the kids in the neighborhood were killing crickets, and I just write this like, you know, short but very like, like there are tears on the page. Like, why would anyone kill crickets? Like, what are they doing? And why is this happening? My sister always often says that like kind of explains me a lot. You know, they often t- say like if you, you know, when you have a child, which I hope to have one day but don't have now, that your heart will grow bigger. And I often say like, I don't know if that's a good thing because it might just explode. That like my heart for those crickets like almost exploded already. Despite pretty difficult circumstances, Pardis was kind of a sheltered kid. She grew up in Florida, surrounded by her extended family. They had all fled Iran two years before the revolution because their father was a high-ranking official in the Shah's government. The main core of my family were all in Florida, and we all lived together. I mean, there was a lot of my childhood that involved even sharing a room with my grandmother and my aunt and my sister. It's kind of awesome. Like, I don't understand how, like, American kids, like, the parents are sleeping together and the kid is by themselves. It's really secluding. And I, my grandmother, she used to tell me a bedtime story every night, you know, and that stuff was amazing for my imagination. I wrote something on my hand. Gosh, it went away. But it's something that you said in one of your videos, and it was that because you didn't understand the culture when you were a kid, you didn't understand boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that's something that helped you get where you are. Yeah, I mean, my parents weren't telling me how I was supposed to behave or act in school, and, and I didn't really have that context. And so I did a lot of things that other kids would have known better not to do, like hang out with my math teacher and like get really obsessed with math or decide that football was awesome and I was going to play it even though I was a girl. All of these things actually, particularly you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago now I guess, would be really not typical and really uncool and I did all of those things. Sixth to eighth grade, I mean just, I was a very easy punching bag because I made all the mistakes and I think I made a lot of other people feel better because uh, they could always throw me under the bus because I didn't really mind being there. To me, I was just excited to do these things and, and I didn't know better. It was sort of like anytime anybody was feeling bad about themselves, they'd be like, parties, come here, like, let me just rain on you for a while and I'll feel better. But yeah, it was uh, That sounds awful. No, come on. Parties really doesn't seem to mind that she was a punching bag at one time in her life. I can't actually say that there was anything that I wish I had, you know, I, that I wish I was American or fit in more. I don't, I don't think any of that. I think that, in, if anything, it was a really rewarding thing, and I wouldn't try to give myself any pity or sympathy. I now understand that my personality probably would never understand culture and that I would be the kind of person who would always break the rules because I'd always be the person that's, like, doing what girls don't do in the high school. Like, I think that that's actually... I'm a natural rule breaker if the rules don't make sense to me, if that makes sense. I, don't, I, I never understood the, like, we do it because we did it this way. So Iran would have really sucked. Well, you know, the Iran at the time was trying to sort of reset some things. But yes, I, I, would, I would definitely have been thrown in jail and probably stoned pretty quickly. I, I wouldn't make it very far because I don't, I don't get that things are work this way because they're supposed to, um, for sure. And I don't, I don't have enough self-preservation to not say when I don't agree with something. I remember during like the Bush uh, administration where it's sort of like, oh, if you question the administration, then you're not patriotic. Well, that kind of thing doesn't make any sense to me. True love for something is caring about it so much that you want it to be better. And so I care about Iranians so much, I want them to be better. And I, I know what I feel is good about it and what could be better. And I'm willing to challenge that. And it's important for me to challenge it because that's what you do about things you care about. You want them to be better.
And this is where we get to part of Pardis' story that threw me for a loop, because it doesn't fit into the story of the fellowship. I knew she had had an accident, but I didn't know, well, I didn't know where it was going to take this interview. Here's what happened. Pardis was coming off a bittersweet win. In 2014, she sequenced the Ebola virus in Nigeria and found it was spreading from person to person, not through contact with insects or animals. It was a huge breakthrough that came even as Pardis lost friends and colleagues to Ebola. The next year, summer 2015, Pardis was happy to see the outbreak was finally ending. She was ready for some relaxation in Montana, where she was giving a lecture on the future of genetics. After the talk, she took a tour on an ATV. Her vehicle hit a curb, flew down a hill, and slammed into trees, flipping her onto some boulders. She waited in pain for 45 minutes before rescuers arrived. I um, shattered my pelvis and both my knees and had a severe concussion and was pretty much just you know, staring at a wall for many, many months and bedbound for many months. And so that sets you into a different place, I think. Your dad broke his legs too, right? Yeah, right. What do you think is going on there? I mean... I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so that was in ninth grade. Um, my dad had a car crash. So there was a two-year period where there was a, like many, many months he was in the hospital and then this a long period where he was bedbound and couldn't walk and he never feels sorry for himself where I'll be honest with you I was like why me like are you, you know I was like crying to anybody who would know like how did this happen to me I mean I have some weak moments but my dad like I've never I never heard that both my parents are tremendous role models in that way and the revolution which itself was a huge thing that happens to a family and being displaced and and having financial problems and all those kinds of things that happen when you flee and go to a new country and then the accident where now my mom is like primary caregiver for my dad who can't do anything himself somehow they never made us feel the effects like it's quite unbelievable in that way where we were always protected from it i'm not sure you never know where these numbers come from but like basically the amount of bones my dad shattered and the amount of bones i shattered in this accident it's described as like there's an eight percent chance of survival the fact that you actually you know, blew out like all of these bones and didn't happen to like sever, you know, the femoral artery and bleed out is very unusual. So we both were in that deeply, deeply unlucky cohort to have a, you know, poly trauma and plates all over our bodies, but yet survive and somehow with our brains essentially intact. I was a passenger. He had a car fly across the median on a highway in a, into a head-on collision. So both of us were minding our own business and, and thrown into this. So a lot of similarities where we're so deeply unlucky, but also so deeply lucky. The luckiest of the unlucky. I don't know what that meant for what we were supposed to do or if there's meaning to things. It seems like in your life there are many like choose-your-own-adventures. Mm -hmm. you, you could have been in Iran. You could have not gotten the Soros. You could have not been in an accident. Your dad could not have been in the accident. Yeah. Do you think about that? I do, yeah. When I had my accident, it was almost like I became morbidly fascinated with people and their accidents, what happened, and all the ways things went really wrong for them. I became really obsessed with that. And I think my family started to worry about how much I did that or just, you know, whenever like one of the physicians would say, like, there's this chance you're going to have a limp and this might not come back and that function might not come back and, you know, you might have difficulty having children and all these things were coming up and I'd get really deep into them, wanting to know every kind of aspect of that. But I had to kind of convince them that I wasn't doing that because I wanted to wallow in self-pity. I was doing that to understand, like, what is the terrain that I need to 
get past to get good. I'm always like amazed at people who, you know, have a severe accident and then find God and think, you know, this is amazing. Where I'm, I'm thinking, how could you possibly like it? You know, if this was what was meant for me, I'm pretty pissed actually. The things that get me upset, you know, and again, a little bit upset, is when people say, oh, like this wasn't the plan for you. And I was like, well, that's a terrible plan. Like, I don't, I don't like that plan at all. You know, because fundamentally, then sometimes people die. I'm like, was that the plan? Like, you know what I mean? Was I supposed to be wiped from this earth? So I think that people make themselves feel better to say this is a plan. It doesn't mean that your life isn't beautiful. There's a different way of respecting the things that have happened to you in your life without having to say that there's a purpose to it. That speaks to what I feel spiritually, is that it's beautiful what we get to experience. And maybe it's short, and it's tragic when it's too short. But there's beauty in that. You don't have to say something else about it. It in of itself is so pure and so meaningful that that's what I honor in my mind. How many times do you have to get knocked down? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean you, you face so many obstacles and had to like get back up and... Yeah, well, uh, there's, been, there's been a few, few you probably don't even know about, but uh, there have been a lot. What doesn't kill you, it doesn't make you stronger, but it gives you empathy and it gives you perspective and it gives you humility and gratitude. And I think that that any of these kinds of experiences that are these humbling experiences are really powerful. And I think that a lot of my drive comes from that as an immigrant, realizing that when this revolution happened, we were grateful to get out and the people who did not have suffered tremendously and that uh, we were given this idyllic, in many ways idyllic, life in the United States. I remember at one of the Soros retreats, soon after I had gotten it, everyone was going around and they were telling their story. And the stories were really powerful and dynamic and interesting. There was somebody whose family had like been at Chernobyl, and there was another group that had basically escaped maybe Korea, and then there was us and the revolution. And so there are all these stories that sound really compelling and that make us sound like we're survivors. And I didn't say it at the time, but I remember kind of thinking about that and, and taking a little bit of an issue with it in the sense of that we were congratulating ourselves for some sort of an achievement. And frankly, I didn't achieve anything. I just, my parents did. Like my parents were the ones who like got out and, and made things happen for us. And if anything, it gave us a little fire in our bellies. I do think at the time I did ask this one question, I said, I just, I'm curious, did anybody, anyone in this room, like not have at least one person who completely believed in you and did everything to make you successful? And in that group, no, everybody did, right? So they had all these external forces that were really hard on them, but internally they had, they had support and they had safety. And so in my mind, actually, being an immigrant was not a major thing that I overcame. And if, if anything, it gave me a life story that drove me to want to do things with my life. And if I didn't have people in my life who believed in me at every point, then I don't, I don't know if I'd be where I was. So that's what she's doing for her own students. I do a lot of advising to students. I'm really passionate about students, and I don't try to make them like me. I don't really care if they like me. I just want them to be happy and fulfilled and self-actualized. So I give, I do a lot of dropping truth on my students, and I'm very real with them. You know, I'll tell them you, you have all the potential, but here is every way that I can see for you things are going to go wrong, and you need to basically be able to navigate those. And what, most importantly, that you you should do the things you do because you absolutely love them, and even without external recognition or anything like that, that you just love what you're doing. Because at the at the very end, that might be all you ever have, but that's actually pretty great. 
Uh, one of my students, I was just with them, and they were really, like, thankful because I spent a long time kind of helping them navigate their lives. And I was like, I'll be honest with you, like, if you, because I, I, I think my students are all smarter and better than me, and I, and I was like, if, if all I ever achieve is helping you self-actualize and get what you need to do in, on this earth, then, then I'm done. Like, I'm just, I'll, I'll just peace out. Like, so in my mind, if I can actually get my students where they need to go, that's how I'm, I have, I can affect the most change on this planet. To be honest, it's a little bit selfish. That's how I believe I will actually have a lasting impact is by investing in the people who are smarter and better and more creative than I am to achieve what they need to achieve. I did that interview with Pardis months ago, and I held on to it because I had no idea what it meant, how it fit into the theme. So I talked to Daisy and Jeannie and Andre, and now I think maybe I understand. Maybe Pardis's story and where she is now after the accident says something about the basic drive that immigrants have to give back to America, even when the worst things happen. Or maybe I should just let it be and not force meaning onto it. So thanks for listening, as always. Let me know what you think I should be doing better by messaging Otherhood on Facebook or tweeting me at Rupa Shinoy. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks again. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this has been Otherhood from PRI. Oh,